Hello, and welcome to the Coral Catalog Podcast. Thanks so much for listening in. I hope that through this podcast, you can find choral repertoire that works for your high school and or middle school choruses. This is episode 19, and I'll be talking to David Brunner about his composition, Jole Canto Todo a Dia, which is available for SATB, SA, and TTB. David Brunner is Professor Emeritus at the University of Central Florida, having led the choral program there for 30 years. David Brunner is highly regarded for his compelling work with singers of all ages, conducting treble, tenor bass, and mixed all-state and regional honor choirs throughout the United States at the elementary, middle, and high school levels, and appearing as a teacher, clinician, and presenter in 34 U.S. states, Canada, the U.K., Europe, Japan, and Australia. He has, on seven occasions, conducted concerts of his own works for chorus and orchestra at Carnegie Hall. An ASCAP award-winning composer, David Brunner is one of a prestigious group of American composers named the Raymond W. Brock Commission Composer by the American Choral Directors Association for the Circles of Our Lives, their highest honor for American composers. Boozy and Hawks and Walton Music have published over 120 of his works. I hope you enjoy my conversation today with David Brunner about Jole Canto Todo El Dia. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Choral Catalog. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Matthew Van Dyke, and I am the host. I am so excited today uh, to uh, have our conversation with uh, David Brunner. Uh, David, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. So I am talking to David today about his piece that I'm sure everybody knows, but if you don't know it, then uh, this, so this will be a really, really interesting episode for you. But, uh, but we're going to talk about David's piece uh, called Yole Canto Todo Adia. Um, this has been, I think, in circulation for a little bit of time. And every time I hear it, I just get so excited because it is such a, a, a vivacious piece. And, uh, and, and I hope that uh, you either know it or will be introduced to it today. So David, before we jump into Yole Canto, I'm going to take you down a, a curveball of would you rather questions? Are you ready? Yes. <laughs> okay, so the first one I have for you is, would you rather go out for every meal and never eat at home, or never be able to go out and only eat at home? Well, that's a good question because I love to eat and I love to cook. And so, um, hmm. well, I live in Chicago and so there are many, many, many wonderful restaurants of every variety. And so I do like to go out to eat. And I guess I would say I would just eat everything out. I would, <laughs> I would choose the first option. So would I, you, I was going to say, would you miss the ability to make yeah. your own? Probably, but then you don't have to do the dishes. You know? <laughs> that's right. That, that's where I am. Uh, okay, let's let's pivot to the next one. Would you rather win a hundred thousand dollars or help your friend to win a million? <laughs> Will he share some of that with me? <laughs> Winnings. Um, oh, that's that's a psychological question. That's a. Of course, I'd, I would love the $100,000 and I would love to help my friend uh, win more than that. I, I, the altruistic answer, of course, would be to help my friend. <laughs> and then the off-camera answer is, of course, $100,000. <laughs> All right, I have just one more for you. Uh, would you rather wear one color and one color only for the rest of your life or always wear mismatching colors? 
Well, I do like things to match, but I but I think it'd be more interesting to have a lot of variety. So I think I would say always something different, always something mismatched, I, I guess. I think it's great. I think, I think if it was all the same and it was all beige, you know, that wouldn't be good. That's so. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I've been into, uh, since I, maybe for the last, I'd say maybe five, six years into that trend where you're wearing different color socks with everything else, oh, yeah. you know, and that, that in the beginning that felt very wrong to me, but now it's kind of just like, let's just go with it. <laughs> all right, David. Uh, good job. You made it through. <laughs> All right. Um, so let's pivot a little bit and let's uh, learn more about you and your musical sides and um, and influences. So who is another choral composer who you feel you are influenced by in some way? That could be in your composition or in your programming. Yeah. So I've, I've conducted a lot more um, pieces than I've composed, I guess. I'm a choral conductor as well as a composer. And so I admire and respect and I'm, and I'm really enriched by so many different composers. It's, it's difficult to say if I'm actually directly influenced by them, but there are many, many composers that I love. Morton Lordson, um, Benjamin Britten, uh, Bernstein Copeland, um, Arvo Pert, um, names that we perform all the time, Craig Hella Johnson, Jake Rimestad. Um, I'm very eclectic in my programming. And I think in a way, knowing these musics does influence me as a composer, though I don't know that I try to be like any of them. You know what I mean? I think we develop, composers develop their own style, their own voice, their own self. And how that happens, I think, partly is because of their exposure to many other kinds of musics. And so the people that I mentioned, as well as, you know, a hundred others, um, may have all been in, influential in some way. And yet I don't know that I could specifically say, well, they taught me this, or I learned this from them. But having known their music has made me a bigger bigger musician and I think a more open composer. I love that answer. Yeah. I, I, I think there's so many as a, as a choral director myself, you know, you, you pick up things from the music that you conduct, you know, you, sure. you get these, um, you know, you develop these habits or you develop these influence. I don't, I don't influence. I, I don't not use that word. You develop these tastes that are transitory between pieces almost a little bit. I feel like you take things from one and intersperse in the other. So I can I can definitely understand um, that sentiment that you that you that you used. Uh, okay, let's do one more before we start talking about your composition. Uh, so what is this is an impossible question, um, but what is one piece of choral music that you just could not live without? What's your desert island piece of choral music? Yeah. Well, I guess it depends on the day. I, it, you know, or the hour so or the minute. <laughs> so many. And I find myself attracted to very early music. I love medieval and Renaissance music and very new music, very contemporary music. I went to a concert just uh, a week ago here in Chicago um, with the William Ferris Chorale, and they sang a program entirely of music I didn't know. And, and I just thought that was so exciting and so so stimulating and so enriching and so emotionally deep because I, uh, none of it was of my experience. And uh, so I, you know, I, I like so many different kinds of musics. If I had to choose one of them, I mentioned Morton Lauridson. I think, you know, his Sure on the Shining Night is something that every time I hear it, I just, 
it's an emotionally deep piece for me. And his O Manu Mysterium as well. You know, those are, I, I never tire of hearing those, those pieces. You know, they're a huge piece. I love the Bach B minor mass. You know, I think I couldn't live without that. And on the other hand, um, something as simple as Britain's um, arrangement of the Sally Gardens, you know, which is so simple and so gorgeous. And those two pieces are so opposite of each other. And yet I, I you know, in some ways I want, I want, I can't let go of any of, them, <laughs> of, any of those. Um, Frank Tichelli's There Will Be Rest is another one similar to the Lordson pieces. I, so it's, you're right, it's an impossible question to answer. And I guess I just answered to someone. No, uh, I think it, I think it's great. I think when I, for me, at least if I was ever asked that question, I would almost respond in very similar ways to how you did. It would be like, well, I love this piece, but it also like, it also jumps me into this, which, you know, as before we started chatting, I talked about the the YouTube rabbit holes and the publisher rabbit holes that I got. It's this, I think it's going to be a similar kind of a concept that we start with one and we bunny hop into other ones. Right. And you love them for different reasons. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's what makes choral music so wonderfully eclectic that there it's, it doesn't all fall into one. I, I don't even know if I want to use the word genre. It doesn't fall into one style. It doesn't fall into one uh, voice. It doesn't sa- fa- fall into one sound. It, it's I'm, I'm right with you in that, that it's, it's just so. Well, our, especially so, so much of the world, everything is available to us now, you know, mm-hmm. it's from every context and tradition and culture that uh, unlike our own, you know, it's, and it's just at the touch of a button we can access and listen to and be part of and be, you know, have that as an, as a, as a new part of our experience. Um, yeah, if you ask me this question next week, I'll have a total, a total different. <laughs> you'll have one. You'll have <laughs> one piece. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. If it's okay from this point, let's do a big pivot and let's talk about Jole Canto Todo El Dia. And now a snippet of Jole Canto Todo El Dia by David Brunner, performed by the Sacramento Master Singers, Dr. Ralph E. Hughes, conductor. Oh, man. 
So, um, listeners, this piece comes in three voicings, uh, an S-A, a T-T-B, or is it T-B-B? Uh, T-T-B. T-T-B, and an S-A-T-B. Did I get all that right? That's correct. Okay, great. So, um, I have in front of me today the S-A version. Um, mm-hmm. I have also done study on the TTB version. Um, uh, so I'll kind of bounce back and forth between those two. Um, and you can always, uh, David, enter any kind of isms that I forgot about or that I didn't touch on with the SATB one or or such like that. Um, so the first question I have for you about your piece is that when was it written? Um, I know that it was a commission because it says it on the top. So can you talk to us a little bit about how that commission came to be? Sure. So uh, it's a it's an old piece. It's been around for um, well for twenty six years, I guess, and um, it was written for uh, the Miami Choral Society, which is now the Miami Children's Chorus. It was actually a children's chorus then, but it had an unusual name. It was the Miami Choral Society, um, and it was their thirtieth anniversary. And my friend Tim Sharp which is not the Tim Sharp, who has, was the longtime executive director of the ACDA. Oh, that's important to know. Timothy A. Sharp, who was the conductor of the Miami Choral Society. So I did this uh, piece for them, and it was premiered in May of 1996. Um, and since then, I wrote a couple other pieces for them as well. I did a um, uh, setting of the St. Francis of Assisi um, Sir Brother Son uh, with Chamber Orchestra, and then a piece called uh, Everything is Music uh, with a roomy text. And that was also with, uh, with dancers and with um, orchestra. So that was fun. But the idea was, back to Joe Licanto, the idea was because Miami has so many Spanish-speaking cultures represented in the entire area, we thought that might be an appropriate thing to use a Spanish text. And so it was my first attempt at writing for that language. Um, uh, after that performance, the next spring, Anton Armstrong conducted the piece with the Children's Honor Choir at the National ACD Convention in uh, San Diego. That was 97. So, so, and then it's just, it's kind of hung around since then. Yeah, that's, that's great to know. I, I'm so, I'm so glad you kind of touched on, uh, you know, the language and how important that language is to um, the people that live around there. Um yeah, that's great. Uh, okay, so um, I know that when you open the music, obviously, you can see the translation, but what kind of grabbed you about setting this text? Did you write this text? Did you find this text? Um, uh, and what, is it, what does it translate to? Right, so um, no, I didn't write it. I've only written, of the many pieces I've composed, I've only written one text myself. 
I don't think I'm as good a poet as I may be a composer. And um, I know a lot of composers do, it'll say words and music by so-and-so. I tend not to do that. I just, I look for words that are meaningful to me in some way and I think might resonate with an audience. So I, I'm very eclectic and I look for words that I can use and get permission for. And I have many horror stories about that. But um, this was a piece that uh, uh, was on a percussion. It was a CD recording by a group called Cross Pulse. And it was a percussion ensemble. And I didn't know anything about them. I just saw this recording and I thought it looked interesting. And they were interested in exploring traditions of all the world's, uh, all the world's percussion traditions. So they took a little of this, a little of that, and they kind of mixed it all together to see what might happen. It was a very interesting CD. And one of the pieces on the disc was Jolie Canto Todo Alia. And it was a solo song <clears throat> with a female singer and um, my piece is not an arrangement of this. It's just a totally different, you know, totally different piece. But I liked the poem and I liked the, I liked the, percussive, the, the percussive nature of her singing and the accompanying percussion ensemble. I just, I liked the song. So it's a very short text. It's just a few lines and it's, um, um, so I'm moving with my heart. I'm moving with a drum. I, I sing to you all day long. I sing to you with affection and joy. And then the last line is, I'm leaving. So I'm leaving with a drum, with affection and emotion. So it's a joyful, it's light heart. You know, I'm moving and moving and singing and it's joyful. And then there is that last line, but, and so I'm leaving. I'm leaving with a drum with affection and emotion. So I don't know if there's also a little um, subtext or I don't know if there's another mm, emotion to explore there. Um, but I said it in a way that's um, because there's, set, there's, there's just a few lines of text is very repetitive. The section, there's only a few bits of melodic material and they repeat a lot, but that's really another question, I think, probably. Oh, sure, sure, sure. So what, um, what version of this came first, the essay? Yeah, the treble version was The first. treble version. And so what, um, what kind of prompted you to make the TTB and then the SATB? Well, a friend asked me to do the T the SATB, you know, a friend that has, that has happened with other pieces, you know, my own music, which was a, a piece a couple of years before that was a treble piece. And uh, then one of my friends said, why do the, why do the kids get all the good tunes? Will you do this? <laughs> my adult choir of SATB singers. I said, sure. So um, Mike Grant in, um, in uh, Colorado called and said, Hey, will you do this for SATB? And I said, sure. And then the TTB came about uh, because of a choir in um, Canada, Grand Prairie, Grand Prairie Boys Choir. Forget exactly where they were located, but uh, I hadn't thought of the of the uh, tenor bass setting, but I think it works well. And I think I, I'm not convinced always that many many versions of the same piece work equally well in every mm. voice. In fact, I still, I mentioned O Music, I still really hear that with treble voices. That, that's the one I hear. And this, although I do like the SATB version, I've not heard the TTB very much. Um, I kind of, the, the original in my ear is the, is the treble version. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, 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 I think I feel that when I hear it every time because of all those minor seconds that kind of that you that you leap into the minor second like i i think that's mm -hmm. so foundational about hearing that specific interval mm -hmm. um and yeah i definitely i definitely can can hear that mm -hmm. 
that's great. Uh, I'm glad you kind of talked me through about how I always like to know which one came first, because I think that that is so important to trace the history and see kind of then what was added and what 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 is the kernel that is really important and the composer kind of started with, if that makes any sense. Yeah. It's interesting, this is off, off topic, but I had an experience back in 2000, which was Copeland's anniversary year. And Boozy and Hawks, of course, has published all of Copeland's pieces, all his works. And they found that in the old American songs, there were a few little pieces missing. There were a couple, there was not an SATB simple gifts of all things. And there was not, because those are available in every voicing. And Irving Fine did some, and Wilding White did some, and they were missing the Little Horses, and they were missing the Dodger and Simple Gifts. And they asked me if I would do SATB versions of those. Well, that was a little intimidating. I was I mean, going to say, that's got to be intimidating. Quite, quite <laughs> intimidating. And essentially, I wasn't adding anything, really. It was all Copeland's material. And it was to go with the orchestrations. And <clears throat> so I, I just really had to find a way for it to work with a few extra voices. It was a really good exercise. It was very interesting to, to have that experience because, well, just because again, the originals were the originals and these were new adaptations uh, in a way that I hoped were faithful to and honoring the originals. So, you know. That's cool to hear. I did not, I think I've, I've done with my trouble chorus, I think the second year I was at my school, we did a uh, a full um, kind of masterwork kind of thing. Um, and uh, it's very hard to find trouble music that's with orchestra. And, uh, and so that kind of popped out at us. So we did a couple of those movements and, mm -hmm. uh, and it was a lot of fun. I, 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 yeah, such a, such a cool piece to do. Um, cool that you touched on that. Okay, the last question I have for you before we kind of pivot again, and kind of microscope into the piece and the teaching aspect of it is, what do you think is the, um, I don't know what term to use the x factor about this piece that why is it performed so often? What is it about this piece that you think is so attractive to singers or attractive to choral directors or even attractive to audiences? Why is this performed so often? Well, you know, I'm really not sure. It's curious. Um, I have, you know, many published pieces, and this is the one that continues to sell the most copies 26 years later. And I'll hear someone, I, I just saw a good friend of mine from 40 years ago, who's retiring from his position next spring. And he said, oh, I just did one of your pieces on my concert. And I said, what did you do? And he said, Julie Canto. And I said, oh, that old thing. <laughs> he, he laughed about it. And he said, oh, I love it. Everybody loves it. Yeah. And I said, well, that's interesting. So um, what's, what's, what's um, curious is that it's been successful with a wide variety of different kinds of choirs. So I've heard children and emerging choirs and then middle school and high school and college and adult choirs, and they all seem to enjoy it and they found some success with it. So it works on a variety of levels. And, um, and it sort of trans, um, it, it sort of also goes across cultures because I've seen recordings or heard performances of choirs in you know, the Philippines and New Zealand and Shanghai and Italy and the UK and of course all across the US. And so I, I think that's, first of all, how do they find this piece? You know, and, what, and, and then I guess I ask your question, what about it is attractive to them? 
Um, I think what you mentioned a while ago, the fact that it's uh, rhythmically, um, it has this vitality um, might be part of it. Um, there's a very uh, strong relationship between the piano and the, which is quite a virtuosic part and the singers. I was gonna say, I have heard from several collaborative artists that they love playing this part. So, <laughs> and yeah. when they're you, when they get, I think in this potential children's choir age group, high school, that some accompaniments can be um, less than fulfilling for a collaborative artist. Well, and this feels really cool. Yeah, not a lot for them to do. Yeah. I've heard that also. The piano features very prominently and it's an, it's an independent part. Mm. And one that pianists do seem to like to play. It's um, it's supportive of the voices, but it doesn't. It's not always playing what they sing. So there's a dialogue and there's a relationship, and um, they're uh, independent and yet they're interdependent. If mm. that makes sense. There, Absolutely. There's really a strong relationship between the two. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's 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 cool to hear. I I, I feel like it's probably so cool to hear. Um, performances from all over the world of your of your music and and how different than they that might they might sound from each other but yet how unique they probably sound oh absolutely yeah absolutely it's very gratifying to know that so many people know know this song you know um and there are slight differences there are you know i, I always feel like like there's one tempo like there's my like i have internally locked in me a tempo for this piece and I had a I had an experience a years ago with a very very good my best friend who recorded a CD of a number of my pieces and he said um, I said can I come to the rehearsals and he says yes but don't don't interfere. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean by that? And he said well just just come along and listen and observe and I, but I said okay so I did and so he started rehearsing and some of the some of the tempos I thought oh that's just too slow that's way too slow or that's a little on the fast side I just I don't think I like that and so he just said he gave me that sort of just trust me look just trust me and as it turned out he was absolutely right I mean when I heard the when I heard the finished recording I thought that's absolutely the right tempo but this piece I do I do feel there's there's one there's a danger of it rushing and there and if it's a little under tempo and sometimes that's just to accommodate the pianist you mm -hmm. know um that doesn't quite feel right either so you know there's that just kind of that magical place tread tread softly uh <laughs> conductors <laughs> yeah what is rushed. what is dare dare i ask the question what is the magical tempo Oh what? gosh! Well, I don't, I don't, <laughs> this episode can be the the, uh, the the historical accurate recording that people come back to. It's just kind of you know when I hear it, I hear it. It's that sort of you know sort of that. Okay, log that. All of those sixteenth notes have to be so distinct and so clear and so individualized. They can't just run together. You know, and, and yet they have to be really, really clear. And so there's there's just that you just have to trust your your pianist and and you as the conductor have to trust each other. And, definitely, definitely. And find, find place. All right, let's dive a little deeper. <laughs> so um, in the uh, in all the core repertoire that we talk about on the show, I would like to come at it from a teacher standpoint as well. That it's not just this piece's 
fun or this piece sounds good that there's that I I I like our listeners to kind of hear from the composer how about you know what kind of things the piece teaches what was it what was the intention of the piece and what can we do to help our students you know become more independent musicians or um you know with tone or something like that so what does uh Jole Canto what kind of musical concepts do you think this piece teaches it really well. What does it? What is it intended to teach, or what does it teach well? Well, I don't know that it's intended to teach anything. Sure, but there are a lot of things you can teach from it. You know, when I whenever I chose music for my choirs, um, from the teacher conductor viewpoint, sometimes you're looking for a piece to fulfill a specific teaching objective. You know, you want to expand their upper range or you want to help them find comfort doing whatever, or you want them, you know, the rhythmic complexity of, and you find a piece that'll accomplish that, Mm -hmm. or you just find a piece that you like, and then you determine what can I teach from this piece. Mm -hmm. So, um, and as a, as a composer, I don't know that I'm ever really thinking of the teaching potential after it's, I can look at it just like I'm never really thinking from a theoretic. I'm never thinking theoretically, you know, I can say, and I never analyze my own music ever, you know, unless I'm forced to, but (laughs) what do you do here? That's really fancy, you know? And I'm like, Oh, really? Um, But, but uh, you could say, you know, I meant to do that. Well, I can later look at it and see that there's obviously I made decisions that, you know, I made specific decisions, but at the time I wasn't thinking. Absolutely. German 6-5 chord certainly would be a nice <laughs> So anyway, back to your question. I think this is certainly rhythmically oriented. Mm-hmm. So there's the issue of syncopation. There's the triplets. There's the relationship between the different rhythms. There's that very agitated, um, steady pulse, uh, agitated rhythms within a steady pulse. I think all of that would be a focus in, in teaching the piece. Along with that is the articulation and the declamatory nature of the, of the text, the, the diction would be tied into that as well, but also the stylistic articulation. It's rather, in some ways, parts of it are rather dry and disjunct and um, angular, and then other parts are rather lyrical. And mm. so I guess another thing would be stylistic differences from phrase to phrase and contours of those, of those phrases. Um, and then you find ways for them, for the students to, the singers to identify with um, those, the big picture ideas and find ways that uh, are practical in them achieving that. Um, everyone has their um, um, kind of teaching strategies. And sometimes those transfer from piece to piece, and sometimes they're devised only for a specific piece. I find in a piece like this, the, the great thing is um, much of it transfers from section to section. So one thing you'll do on the second page is something you'll probably do on the ninth page or whatever. I'm not looking at the score in front of me. But sure. There's, you know, there are those ideas that transfer from phrase to phrase, from, from text line to text line, et cetera. Um, I think the rhythm, the articulation, the style, and phrasing are things that I would, um, are big picture concepts that I capitalize on. That's great. That's wonderful. Yeah, I would have definitely touched on the rhythm aspect. I think with the hand claps as well, you can, uh, you know, that's a really accessible gateway to teach yeah. notation in a in a children's choir scenario or a um, or even a, 
a, a middle school or high school scenario um, that the clapping. Know. Yeah, they often do the well, they do the triplets a lot, of course. Mm -hmm. The claps can be a little tricky in this piece. Um, there are a couple of places. Um, well, that single clap that kind of comes out. Of I was going to say that's the hardest one. <laughs> it kind of surprises everybody all the time. But, um, you know, when it's tight and when it's it should be bright clapping, short, bright clapping um, towards the end of the hand rather than in the hollow of the hand, I think, so that it's really bright. When you, when it locks into place, there's just nothing like it. Mm -hmm. And even when it's a little messy, everyone seems to love it. So um, <laughs> I think it's OK. If it's not exactly together, it's OK. But so much of what you what, what you just said, so much of the um, clapping rhythm ties directly into the speaking, singing rhythm also. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think if there's uh, if it's all right to kind of touch on one more thing, I think what this piece could teach really well is um, I think the one of the hardest things for developing choruses to hang on to is not necessarily part independence. It's more the homophony aspect of singing together in the same rhythm in different pitches. Um, and I think that this mm -hmm. piece, I think some of the some of the challenge in this piece is that um, you have a lot of similar motion in how it moves, but yet there's always that one tricky thing that jumps that jumps into the minor second, or it jumps, or it has that seventh. So it's, I think it also can help your singers with um, with tuning and intonation practices as well. Um, mm -hmm. It, it's going to, I think at first it might, it might be pretty challenging. I honestly think that the, the hardest part is probably the beginning. And yeah, in that, um, and, but that mm -hmm. being said, it is, it is something that, um, is attainable. It is not, it, it don't, don't get, you know, just, um, disillusioned by this immediately and say, oh, that's a minor second or that's a, um, it's very attainable in the way that it works. It just is going to take some, uh, friction, I think in your singers to be like, that's, that interval is written there. It's not wrong and embrace the dissonance in a sense. Um, so that yeah, might be another some, thing. Yeah, there's some mild dissonance. I, I think it's in it and it's just a little unexpected until you're used to it. And then it's then you expect it, you know, because mm -hmm. you're <clears throat> you've heard it and you've internalized it. Sure. Um, and then there are the other parts that are very consonant that are very, you know, with with the thirds yeah it's beautiful it it, it, it almost you can you can almost hear it on the first time that it's so because of the rhythm and it's and it like lulls you into it and weirdly you know if that makes sense yeah and those three what i was saying there's just really those three little ideas and then lots of repetition that opening idea which is perhaps the more angular and the more um, it, dissonant, I guess we could say. And then there's that very lyrical, very legato, light, buoyant. And then the faster moving, the one with the shortest note values. That's <clears throat> most choirs tend to breathe after every measure. <laughs> I really intend that as one long. I think there may be even dotted lines saying don't breathe. Yeah, there are. <laughs> That's like a huge phrase. It's a huge long phrase. Um, it's intended and, and choirs will just need to find a way to manage that, you know, um, however they solve that. But. And if there's not a dotted line, there's a crescendo. Stop breathing. Don't breathe there. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I think I, I think that's great. I think that there's just so much to teach in this piece. There's so many things that you can. Um... If I could say too, then there's of course the language. Mm, and, mm. You know, the most uh, the question I'm asked most often is: Is it yo le canto or yo le canto? Is it yame or jame? And so I uh, I had an experience and I was conducting this with an honor choir somewhere and. This really lovely young girl uh, raised her hand and very politely said, you know, Dr. Bruner, it's yo, that's yo le canto. And I said, yes, I do know that. Um, when I was writing the piece, I had a student at the university from Venezuela and we talked about this and he said, there's the formal pronunciation and then there's sort of our everyday street language. Mm. And we say, jame voy and yo le canto with a kind of j, the harder sound. And I liked that little nudge. I liked that little, and it reminded me again, I guess, of the percussive nature of the, when I first heard this piece, sure. you know, so I do, though I've heard it both ways and it works both ways. And it's probably correct either, either way. I kind of do like that alternative um, pronunciation. Great. Awesome. That's, I think that's great to, to know. Um, you know, staying on that topic for just maybe another minute. Um, I talked to um, another one of my guests, um, about uh, his Noel Nouvelle, Alex Schumacher. And he was talking about this piece, because he his piece that he originally wrote um, his arrangement of Noel Nouvelle for his students that he was teaching at a Catholic school. And he chose Noel Nouvelle because it was a very repetitive text. It was a great, dare I say, he used the term, my first French piece. Um, and I think that, that that applies very much in this capacity as well. There's there's so many phonics in this piece that, that repeat itself. Um, there's not a, a, a exorbitant amount of text. It's, um, and they all, um, there's not a, a, dare I say, there's not a ton of variation in that, you know, when you have, you know, that specific line of text, you're gonna get that specific motif or that specific theme. So that's yeah. a really, really great way to introduce your singers to the Spanish language, to introduce your, to help with memorization. Um, I think that there's, you know, we could we could go down the list, but that's something that kind of jogged my memory when you started talking about the language. Yeah, that's a good point because each phrase has its own line of text. And you're right that each, each, each um, musical idea is different when the text is different. Mm -hmm. And then, the, and the only thing they have to really memorize is how it repeats. It does. It's not always predictable. And the hand clap. <laughs> <laughs> um, great, awesome. All right, so let's um, let's kind of jump to the next question. And if in your time that you have directed this piece, any of the voicings, or heard this piece done, or clinic this piece, or whatever it might be that you've encountered this piece again. What is the first part that you start with? You know, we think of choral directors as the hook, the first rehearsal. When we hand them this piece, what's going to get them to say, let's sing this piece again, or I love this song. So what's the hook? Well, you could start with any of those main ideas and, and probably it would work very well. I, since you said the opening statement is the hardest, maybe don't do that first. <laughs> you could do the which is sequential and repeats, you know, stepwise. Mm -hmm. It's just really a, a measure. It's one, it's an idea that's a measure long and then it's repeated and then it's repeated and then it's elongated, I guess, at the end. But that could be a, an easy place to start. And it, and it, 
it's uh, full of that playful rhythmic um, motion, which characterizes so much of the piece. And then, so I guess I'm kind of going backwards from the last idea to the second, that idea, and maybe the heart, maybe the introductory motive last. Um, you know, and and all along, I would I help them I help them identify what are the differences between this? What are the differences in our singing style? What are the differences in the text? What are the differences in the way you would articulate this? Um, how 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 um, how is the character different from each of the from each of these phrases? Um, yeah, and. Uh, Having said that, I don't know that it, you would have to do that again. It's just important that they identify the, the, the parts. There is there then that fourth idea, I guess, which is the chole canto, which mm -hmm. is the triplet. And when I've performed it, I've always done the last note short. Da, 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 da. But it's really notated with a quarter note at the end. And when I hear performances, di, da, da, da. It's like, oh, well, that's kind of nice. <laughs> and looking at the score, it's sort of accurate, you know? you know. So I think either of those work, and I think I may have rethought. I don't. I don't know if there are some instances in the in the score where some of them are eighth note releases. Uh, you're looking at it. I don't know, and I don't have. It no, that's you. okay. I, 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 <laughs> it could be that some of them are quarter notes and some of them are eighth notes at the end. It looks to be like the end is the only eighth note release, but every other one, you know, in that last page, like that's very quick, quick yeah. and crisp where the other ones have that yum. That well, I think note. part of the reason there also is because then the clapping takes over those triplets. Yes, definitely. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I learned something. <laughs> Wasn't that fancy? Yeah, that's. I, do you, I feel like, I, now I am not a composer, uh, um, but I feel like I hear very often that every time a composer revisits, revisits their piece that they've maybe left in a while, they, they, they learn something new about their past self and, how, and what they chose. Yeah, I think that's true. There are some pieces that I've not looked at for many years and I'll, and I'll for some reason go back to it or play through it or think about it or hear a recording of it or something. And I'll think, oh gosh, I really like that. I really like that song, mm. you know? Or, mm, <laughs> I'm not so sure about that. I'm not sure about that. That's and I've funny. never really gone back and revised. Uh -huh. Never um, after a per first performance, for example, if it's not yet in print, I don't know that I've re really made many revisions. But I think, you know, you look back in perspective of having written for decades at your early pieces and you think well, I may have done that in a different way. If I were writing it today, sure. it would sound different, but of course. Yeah. To kind of jump back to just the last question, I, th I think I would, I, you know, we as directors don't have to always start from the beginning. Uh, you know, and I, I hope listeners out there that that is not your procedure and your protocol to be like, okay, here we go. Let's start at the beginning and let's kind of, barrel through um that score study is just the most important thing to figure to kind of start with so I, I would start at the very last page you have unison right there it is going to be you know an attainable tonic you know tonal thing right away yes the rhythm is 
a little more complicated at the end. Um, but I would just start further back and then sew the seam as I told my as I tell my students, sew the seams together and then bring it to the beginning. Um, even though all the students want to do is let's just run it. Let's run it. I want to hear it. Let's run it. Um, but that's, I think, where I would start. Well, that's great advice. Yeah. Score study, score study, and score study. Yeah, that's um, okay, let's kind of jump to the next question. Um, what are, in your times that you have done this, sim similar kind of introduction, in your times that you have done this or heard it, um, you talked about your friend in the recording session, what are some things that you consistently hear that might be pitfalls to someone first starting this with their ensemble? Um, and what kind of tips and tricks could you potentially give them to say, watch out for this? You know, where's the caution sign? Where's the yield sign? Where's the stop sign? Hmm. Hmm. Well, I think what I said earlier about being kind to your uh, pianist by not <laughs> rushing is important. And this piece can accumulate speed. It can, it can pick up speed in a dangerous way. So finding a really steady pulse for the singers is important early on while they're while they're learning the the ideas. Um, um, I think in general it's not a heavy-footed piece; it's a lighter lighter quality of singing. So, for example, on the on the third idea, dee, da, 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 when it moves from the text to the la la la, mm. um, I think a very light, bright ah sound as opposed to a darker. Um, burnished kind of a sound. It yeah. should be on the tip of the tongue and very forward and very bright and light. And really, uh, the piece takes on that character, I think. If, if they can hear it and feel it there, the rest of the ideas also take on that kind of br bright color and quality. Um, I would say um, um, don't be afraid to let every, all the phrases sound different. I heard a really wonderful recording and I wish I could remember who it was. It was the SATB version. Uh, it was done at the West Coast ACDA Divisional a couple of years ago and um, really, really stunning. And I, when I listened to it, I thought, why is this so good? Why is this so wonderful? And it's because they really shaped the phrases in a way that was just not what was on the page. It really was so intuitive and so musical and so correct so right and so i think that, that you can always explore how does this phrase feel how does it make you feel where do you go because it's going that direction with you how, how can we shape it in a way so i think within you know you see a crescendo we sing louder you see a retard we sing slower but there are other ways that you can explore the way a phrase moves and this would be a good piece to play with that with because because there are these identifiable ideas, these differences in ideas, and because they reappear so often. Um, so I would explore the differences in style. Um, and then I would just practice the claps. <laughs> right? right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you, t like, glad you touched on that. I mean, it's so... Uh, uh, I, I'm really glad that you touched on the 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 law the la 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 yeah, la la. Yeah. I think that's so easy because it is a little higher in the range yeah. to be a little bit more barky. Um, yeah. You know, especially with all of the you know um, shorter stuff that maybe the choir feels like at that point it's like the shutters open and whatnot, but it still needs to have 
buoyancy to it mm -hmm. because it is i mean it's it's more dancey than it is park and bark um so i'm glad that you touched on that because i think maybe some might fall into that trap to be like all right now these are long notes so let's go mm -hmm. um you know let the pull all the stops out um yep i agree cool okay so the last question i have about your piece is another impossible one uh like you know <laughs> your favorite piece of coral or you know the piece you couldn't live without but what is your favorite thing about this piece? Well, I guess it's the piano part. You know, I work a lot with singers. I've worked my whole life with singers and I write for singers and I love singers. And I think I like the piano part. Um, I'm a pianist and I feel very comfortable at the keyboard. And I, and I, okay. So I was writing this piece when my friend Ellen Dominguez uh, was over and she was making homemade tortillas and pico de gallo and we were dancing around the kitchen and I was playing on her upright piano and she said what's that song I love that song and I said oh it's just something I'm I'm playing with and she she just was the most fun and she um, she contributed a lot to the to the lighthearted character of this and I was playing the piano and I was just kind of improvising and so a lot of this the piano sort of thing um, just feels like part of me. It just feels natural in my in my hands. Um, I have to be reminded that not not um, I want to write a piece that a lot of pianists will be successful with. And so I have rather large hands, and I have a very good friend. She has rather small hands, and she says, "Just remember, David, we can't all come down on a tenth. You know, we can't always do <laughs> parallel tenths." Yeah. And I'm like, okay, okay. So I, I think I, I was mindful when writing it of what would be um, idiomatic, certainly for the piano, and sure. what would be within the range of you know most accompanists. But I like that, and I like the I like the relationship between the singing and piano parts. I, I do like that, and the fact that they're so different and yet they so uh, belong together. Yeah, excellent. I I love that. I love that. Yeah, like I told you. I mean, so many pianists have said. Yeah, I love playing that one. Or, or when you hand it to them and they've never played it, they say, "Oh man, what is this?" <laughs> in a good way. In a good way. Not none. <laughs> All right. So, um, thanks so much for kind of talking to me sure. about your piece today. And uh, I know you said it's a it's it's an old beauty, but it but it still feels new. Um, and um, I think that's what's so exciting. So the last couple of questions I have for you tonight are really more about you. Um, so are there any uh, exciting projects on the horizon for you? I know you are now Professor Emeritus and retired and uh, maybe you're like we we're talking about before we started recording that your retirement didn't start as planned, but now it's starting to kind of smooth out a little. So what are some exciting projects that might be on the horizon for you? Right. Well, I had that little thing called COVID that was beginning <laughs> my retirement. And so um, it was about a year ago, I, I started this large project for, uh, it's a song cycle for a full orchestra and tenor solo. So there's not actually a choir involved, but it's for uh, Chung Park, who's the director of orchestras at my school at the University of Central Florida. And so he's asked for this for a year from spring for 2023 spring and it's a three movement work on text by Wendell Berry and Wendell Berry is this is the poet that I dearly love and he lives in Kentucky and he's deeply um, attached to the land and to um, 
cycles and seasons and circles and generations and reaching forward, but holding the hand of those who have gone before us over the centuries and just wonderful poetry. And so there are three movements, I'm calling it a timbered choir, which is uh, after one of his little books of poetry called A Timbered Choir. And there are three uh, poems about great trees, about going and sitting under the trees. And the one that's the timbered choir um, goes, um, patient as stars they build in air, tier after tier a timbered choir. Uh, stout beams upholding weightless grace of being, a blessing on this place. It's they're really wonderful texts. So, so I've already actually composed it. It's about 15 minutes, but I'm starting to orchestrate it. And that for me takes a little time. Mm. Just because there's so many possibilities. I mean, there's, you know, it could be this or it could be that or it could be this. And there's so many colors and so many possible combinations of instruments that I just I just can't stop fiddling with it until I have to just, you know, stop, stop touching it, <laughs> you know, because yeah. I, I, you, you rethink it and rethink it. And so I'm very excited about that. And then another big piece is a, um, a large work for, um, for chorus on texts by Kabir, who was a 15th century Indian uh, mystical poet. And, um, he, it's a complicated oral tradition because all his poetry was transmitted orally. It was sung, his, it was sung and it's complicated. And so I wanna honor the tradition, um, but, I, but I, um, I need to find a way for that to work with, with today's choirs um, and something that I can do um, that I, I would be able to do. So I've talked about it for years with uh, my good friend, Doreen Rao, and I just have to start writing it. <laughs> I have to start doing it. So uh, those are kind of the two huge things. And then a lot of little, little stuff, little pieces. That's exciting. Well, I, I wish you all the luck in the orchestration and uh, um, diving into that project. I know has been on your mind for a couple of years. Um, all right. So the last question I have for you today is kind of how we as listeners, how we as directors, how we as commissioners, how can we get in touch with you and um, connect with you? Whether it's about, like I said, commissioning something new or um, finding out about how a certain piece got started or how what tempo that you want in a specific piece. Um, how can we get in touch with you? Uh, well, I have a website as most everyone does. It's uh, davidbruner.com. And uh, you can find me there and you can contact me there. And there are, I try to keep it up to date because there's nothing worse than a not up to date website, <laughs> right? But uh, it, it's a, that's a full-time job, isn't it? Um, keeping everything current. Uh, I can be contacted through there. And then you can find, you know, I'm always interested to find pieces of recordings and performances that I had no idea were taking place just by, you know, looking around and listening and going to YouTube and whatever. And I find out things that I had no idea uh, were happening, but davidbruner.com is a, a safe way to find me. Awesome. Well, David, I want to take this opportunity as we wrap up to say thank you for taking the time to talk to me today and, um, you know, telling us more about your piece and things that, uh, you know, experiences you've had with that piece and, uh, um, you know, recordings that you've heard and uh, strategies for us. Uh, it's just been a, a really phenomenal conversation and a wealth of knowledge. So thank you again for taking the time to talk to me. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it very much. Thanks so much for listening to the Coral Catalog. And I hope you enjoyed my conversation with David Brunner. 
please make an effort to explore more of Yo Le Canto Toda El Día and David's other compositions to see if any can fit into your programs or curriculums. While you're here, take a second to hit that subscribe button and follow the Coral Catalog so you don't miss out on any future episodes. Let me know what you thought of the show, too, by writing a review. And most importantly, share this resource with other choral directors and choral lovers. We work better when we work together. Again, thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode of the Choral Catalog.